You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Questions tonight about the way in which homicide investigators may have cast their net to catch the killer of 13-year-old Marissa Shen. A number of men from the Lower Mainland's Middle Eastern community have come forward telling our Sarah McDonald they felt unfairly profiled. We still believe that this crime was a random act. When we first learned of charges laid in one of the province's most high-profile homicide cases, Based on new evidence that was recently gathered by our investigators, we are able to confirm one person as the prime suspect. Investigators were notably tight-lipped on exactly how they narrowed down a pool of some 2,000 persons of interest to make an arrest. We methodically went through uh, these individuals and either included them or excluded them from uh, persons of interest. Now, two months later, new details are emerging on the investigation into the murder of 13-year-old Marissa Shen, though not from authorities. Hundreds of kids in Vancouver been uh, approached by cops. Multiple men of Middle Eastern descent are shedding new light on the DNA dragnet deployed in this case, targeting a specific demographic, sharing similar markers with the Syrian national ultimately charged. That's why I didn't hesitate to give them my DNA and they... Uh, Bring out a piece of paper that, I, uh, that they signed, and I also I signed it that this DNA uh, will be using for this purpose only. Several other immigrants of Middle Eastern descent now living in the Lower Mainland who didn't want to speak on camera tell Global News they too were targeted in that investigation between March of this year and September when an arrest was made. Forensic DNA experts say that dragnet technique isn't unheard of, but it also isn't commonly used. They don't do this as part of their standard investigative process. They would really only do this typically if they've reached a dead end. Okay. Those who had samples taken did so with consent, but some say they felt they had no choice but to do so, raising concerns for civil liberties advocates. Those people may be particularly vulnerable. Uh, uh, when they're confronted by state agents like the police asking them to do things. Meanwhile, I hit the unit at the center of this investigation isn't talking. This case and its prime suspect now before the courts. Sarah McDonald, Global News. The Vancouver Police Department is also coming under fire tonight. A Toronto man claiming he was recently carted, stopped and asked for identification for what he feels was no justifiable reason. Grace Key has more on how the police are responding tonight and the irony of the situation. I was smoking a cigarette as I was walking. This police cruiser came from that direction. Desmond Cole is visiting from Toronto and on Tuesday he was walking next to Marine Park Square in Vancouver's Cole Harbour when a police officer stopped him for smoking in a park. Cole says the officer then asked for his name and identification, a practice known as carding. When I told him I didn't believe I was breaking any bylaw and that I wasn't going to give him my name, he said, are you trying to make this difficult? Are you trying to be smart? Are you trying to be hard? Because what I can do is I can get out of this car I can put the handcuffs on you and I can take you down to the police station. Cole finds the stop ironic since he was on his way to meet with the BC Civil Liberties Association about carding. The journalist and activist is in Vancouver at the invitation of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternative where he'll be giving a speech about racism. Why wouldn't this officer just say you're not allowed to smoke in a public park if you happen to venture onto park territory. I'm just letting you know. Have a great day. 
Why was he so insistent on getting my name? Why did he ask me during the conversation if I have warrants out for my arrest? I just got carded by the Vancouver police. Cole released a video on social media describing the incident. The Vancouver police released a statement saying the video was not accurate. A street check was not conducted and no information was recorded. Adding, in this case, our officer used his discretion and chose not to serve a bylaw offence ticket. The executive director of the BC Civil Liberties Association says this is a systemic problem. Black people and Indigenous people are significantly overrepresented in police stops in this city. Uh, for Indigenous people, it's a ratio of, of 7 to 1. For black people, a ratio of 5 to 1. Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart is reaching out to Cole and the Vancouver Police Department about the incident. Grace Key, Global News. No charges will be laid against an Abbotsford police officer accused of theft. The officer, you might remember, was caught on video surveillance allegedly stuffing cash into his sock during a drug raid at an Abbotsford home. The prosecution service determining that insufficient evidence would endanger the likelihood of a conviction. The officer testified in court that he put the money in his sock as a joke before putting it back. The Abbotsford Police Department says the officer remains on administrative duty while the Office of the Police Complaints Commissioner conducts a separate investigation. Our first look tonight at the so-called Mr. Big sting by undercover officers that allegedly shows accused child killer Gary Handlin confessing to the murder of 12-year-old Monica Jack. Ted Chernecki joins us live in the newsroom with more on this story. That video, Ted, released late this afternoon. Yes, it has been released uh, with the voice of the undercover officer altered and his identity blurred out. But the accused, you will see on the bottom right of your screen, and his voice is not altered. But we did listen to it carefully and uh, put subtitles there to help clarify what he's saying. So just a reminder, it was a clear spring Saturday, uh, sorry, a Saturday spring day back in 1978 when 12-year-old Monica Jack was riding her bicycle uh, from Merritt to her home at Nicola Lakes. She never arrived. Her remains were discovered in 1996, 17 years after her disappearance. Uh, some forestry workers found the skeleton about 20 kilometers from where her bike was found. The undercover video you're about to see is very similar to the so-called Mr. Big operation that has convicted other killers. It's where the officer poses as a criminal trying to clean up evidence to clear a suspect. But I got to know, I know you all covered this off. So tell me what you can remember. I remember picking a broad up one time. Having sex. Then I just lost it for some reason. Uh, I think I drank a little bit, I'm not sure. This one here, you see the river. The accused, Gary Handlin, was 67 years old when he was arrested three years ago. He would have been about 31 years of age when Monica Jack was killed. He has pleaded not guilty. Chris, Sophie? All right. Thanks for that, Ted Trenecki reporting. Well, a reminder, as we head into winter, we're still dealing with a natural gas shortage, and British Columbians are being reminded to limit their use. Fortis, B.C. says the shortage created by an explosion back in October on the Enbridge pipeline could last all winter. 
They repaired it, and natural gas is flowing again, but only at about 55% capacity. And now that it's getting colder out, demand has increased. It really is going to become very weather dependent and also conservation dependent. So people can, can cut back, keep the temperature down, limit the hot water use. That's going to help take away uh, the top end of the demand. And uh, as weather uh, forecast is for a warm, slightly warmer than normal winter, that will help us as well. And from natural gas to gasoline, better news for drivers on the lower mainland. Gas prices are going down again. Aaron MacArthur is live with more on how much you'll save and how long it'll last, Aaron. Chris, it might last a week or even longer than that. Uh, this is the one rare occasion, it seems, where the international price of crude oil is actually relatable to what we're paying at the pump. The price at the pump is actually going down. What has been hovering above $1.40 will be six cents a liter cheaper by midnight. It is very much the result of uh, Pacific Northwest refiners uh, having a lot of gasoline, not as much demand. When we hit $1.38.9 at midnight tonight, uh, we are going to see the lowest prices here in Vancouver going back to about January the 4th of this year. The reason for the sudden decline? A major sell-off in the oil sector. A barrel of oil has gone from a recent high of $76 to less than $56 in just two weeks. It's one of the largest price corrections in history. It has caught producers and consumers both off guard. Oil's been under pressure since about the beginning of October. In the month of October, it was no different than most other asset classes, like the stock market, which sold off very heavily. But then you've also got the global factors in play right now. We've got a market that's, again, concerned with oversupply. But worse than that, demand is slumping. U.S. trade policy forcing China to cut back on production and it has cratered the price for Western Canadian oil. The differential between prices has some Alberta producers urging the government to restrict production, something Alberta politicians are hesitant to do. We're considering all of our options uh, at the moment and, and appreciate that, uh, that different voices are, are bringing forward uh, different, different options, different uh, possible uh, ways to, uh, to try to correct the differential. Hard to pin down whether the blip in the price of oil is correctable or if it's a sign of a larger worldwide slowdown. One thing's for sure, enjoy cheaper gas while you can, because it won't last long. Now, to put this in perspective, uh, $1.30 might seem like a, a good deal from where we have been, but we still pay the highest taxes in the country. A liter of gasoline tomorrow in Ontario likely to be below $1, Chris and Sophie. Oh, tough to hear that for people out in uh, this part of the country. Thanks very much, Aaron. New restrictions for commercial vehicles on the Coquihalla Highway announced today that will keep big trucks confined to the slower lanes. Starting this week, the Ministry of Transportation and Infrastructure is restricting commercial vehicles from using the far left lane on the Snowshed Hills section of the Coquihalla between Box Canyon and Zopkios. The Coquihalla is one of the province's busiest highways. Ministry says 33 of 35 extended closures on the Coquihalla last winter involved commercial vehicles vehicles. The no trucks in the left lane program could eventually be expanded to other sections of highways in BC's interior. Surrey announcing today the man who will lead the transition from RCMP to a municipal police force. 
Terry Waterhouse has been with the city since 2015 and says he'll forge his own path. But as John Wall reports, details on how he'll get the job done remain vague. And critics are questioning the appointment. Bullets are still flying. I want to be safe in my own community. The body count continues to rise. Something needs to change. While the people of Surrey are still wondering how a promise to bring in a municipal police force will become reality. It's going to cost a fortune to change over. It's going to take forever. Surrey's new policing transition general manager, Terry Waterhouse, says it can happen in two years. It's ambitious, but our plan is comprehensive. But missing from that comprehensive plan, a decision on the policing model that fits Surrey's needs. That has to be developed before we can determine exactly how the implementation plan will happen. So no clear picture of staffing needs, not to mention overall cost. The Waterhouse admits it might be more than the 10% increase once touted by Mayor Doug McCallum. It's hard to say at this point exactly what it will be, but the mayor has indicated that, uh, that, that, is, that is a potential. Not everyone thinks Waterhouse was the right choice for the job. We have a uh, competent academic bureaucrat, but what we really need uh, at the helm is uh, a law enforcement official who has years of experience. Former Councillor Barinda Rossotti adds, while the two-year timeline sounds good, it's better to do it right. Rushing something so significant could really not only set us back, but could be detrimental to a lot of uh, the investigations and the police work that's going on right now. Well, some say extra cost and time are fine as long as it stops the violence. If we don't start, we're never going to get there. Others say it makes the case to keep the status quo. Fantasy world as far as I'm concerned. One thing that is based in reality, Surrey still has plenty to figure out before residents start to feel safe again. John Hua, Global News. Canada Post has issued a new offer to its employees. The Crown Corporation's four-year offer includes annual 2% wage hikes, plus signing bonuses and job security guarantees. Canada Post says the offer is only viable if it can be agreed to before the holiday shopping rush. Members of the Canadian Union of Postal Workers have been given until Saturday to accept the deal. A new report reveals the staggering financial hit substance abuse is having on B.C. In 2014, it cost the provincial economy nearly $5 billion, and that's before the peak of the opioid crisis. Nadia Stewart explains the goal of the study and what's taking the biggest toll. Ask Samit Ahuja and he'll tell you addiction to alcohol and drugs cost him everything. I lost my family and my wife and my two children, and... The amount of money that I lost as a result of the addictions doesn't compare or pale in comparison to the losses I have for myself. The kind of things money can't replace. And on top of the personal cost is the cost to society. The University of Victoria's Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research is breaking down the numbers in B.C. The number we estimate is $4.8 billion for 2014. It would be more than $5 billion now. That $4.8 billion price tag is mostly driven by the use of legal substances, with alcohol as the top cost driver, accounting for $1.9 billion. The overall cost to the healthcare system, almost $1.6 billion. The drugs that are prescribed, um, there's hospital treatment, emergency department treatment, presentations to family doctors, day surgeries. For this study, researchers were relying on data from 2014, meaning the overall cost now, four years later, is even higher. 
Stockwell says government needs to pay more attention to the heavily used legal substances that aren't as regulated as the illegal ones. And of course, harm reduction. For those struggling with addiction to alcohol or drugs, Ahuja would like to see government put a greater focus on what life could look like. To me about promoting recovery, and I think that might be the most important thing that we can do to assist the economic burden that comes from the addictions, perhaps by promoting recovery and showing people how good life can be once you take that positive step to get better. Nadia Stork, Global News. But right now, a warning tonight for dog owners after a Vancouver Island woman lost her pet to a bacterial infection that seems to be spreading. As Catherine Urquhart tells us tonight, even though the deadly bug is still rare, she wishes she had known about it and about the vaccine that could have saved her pet. I don't want anybody else to experience this. It's gut-wrenching. It's horrible. Last week, Sarah Galbraith's beloved dog, Hope, died. The mixed-breed Mexican rescue animal passed away after contracting leptospirosis, suspected of getting it during a walk at a local park in Souk, where water may have been contaminated. Puddles like this that Hopi would run through. When Hope stopped eating her meals for several days and then started vomiting, Sarah took her to the vet. Got a phone call saying I had to come and get her immediately and rush her to Central Veterinary Hospital because there was a toxin attack, attacking her kidneys. Within days, Hope was dead. It can cause liver failure, kidney failure, or it can cause a condition where um, uh, blood vessels develop holes and the animal bleeds internally. In Greater Victoria, there's been a recent outbreak of leptospirosis prompting warnings. Fortunately, if caught early, it can be successfully treated with antibiotics. And leptospirosis is entirely preventable. Simply um, get your pets vaccinated. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's at relatively low risk still in BC, but if they do ex- get exposed and they get a high enough load, um, they can get ill and die. And the, and, and the um, vaccine is preventive. <laughs> Best dog ever. I just don't want anybody else to have to go through this. Sarah Galbraith is now urging others to get their dogs vaccinated so that they too don't lose their best friend. You miss her? More than anything in the world. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. The people have spoken, the people have spoken in big numbers, and the people have spoken clearly. And this is very clear direction for where we go from here. Calgary Mayor Nahid Nenshi reacting to the local vote heard around the world. More than 56% of Calgarians turned up to say no to the bid for the 2026 Winter Olympics. The plebiscite is non-binding, but Nenshi's comments make it pretty clear the bid is most likely dead. The Calgary vote made front-page headlines in the two remaining countries still considering a bid, Sweden and Italy. Well, it has been nearly a year since Premier John Horgan made his controversial decision to continue construction of the Site C Dam in northeastern B.C. Tonight, in the first of a three-part series, Global's Jordan Armstrong takes us behind the scenes on a tour of a project that makes even the word massive seem inadequate. Just a 10-minute drive from Fort St. John is Site C, where it feels like minus 21 on this frigid fall day. Construction is only heating up. We're running 24-7. It's non-stop, so that's two 12-hour shifts round the clock. 
On the north side, the dam itself is finally taking shape, but has yet to cross the Peace River. In order for that to happen, the water needs to go elsewhere. A huge operation here that's been going on since the summer. They're working on the two diversion tunnels for the Peace River. In the fall of 2020, the water will be rerouted behind that slope there so they can work on the dam in what is now the center of the river. Each diversion tunnel will be three quarters of a kilometer long. We're taking four meter excavations every every 24 hours, what we're doing both sides. So it's going, it's going very well, actually. On the south side of the piece, work is underway on an 800-meter-long concrete buttress that will provide a foundation for the generating station and spillway. The water will come in at that top level, come down through the penstocks, which are the large pipes, through the turbine, and then they'll exit down here. Down there, where the trailers are, will be water. The six turbines and generators will produce enough energy to power 450,000 homes. Site C is being built for the future energy needs of the province of British Columbia. Uh, StatsCan predicts a population growth of over a million people in the next 20 years and potential industrial development, so forestry, mining, uh, natural gas and, and liquid natural gas activities. A huge project with a massive budget, $10.7 billion. And they're not even halfway there. Despite round-the-clock construction, it will be another six years, the end of 2024, before BC Hydro can plug in to the power of Site C. Jordan Armstrong, Global News, near Fort St. John. Is it now stable? It's been uh, stabilized. Tomorrow night, the controversy around Site C, the cost, the court challenges, and concerns about unstable land. That's tomorrow, Thursday, on the News Hour. Another video shows the terror as Californians are forced to run gauntlets of fire to evacuate their homes. The death toll from those wildfires has now topped 50, with more than 100 still missing. And tonight, people in one part of the state hard hit by the fires are now worried about long-term health effects. Tonight in the smoldering mountains outside Los Angeles, a grim discovery. The 51st body in a skyrocketing statewide death toll. With more than 9,000 structures torched, most in Northern California, many are still unaccounted for. Carol Haxby's son missing for nearly a week. I don't know what I'm going to do. Families impacted by the fire in Paradise filing a lawsuit against Pacific Gas and Electric, the power company they blame for sparking the fire. While investigators have not yet determined the cause, if found liable, the utility says it could face financial trouble. Meantime, in Southern California, new questions. I think it's so serious that I'm afraid to think about it. Melissa Bumstead is one of many residents who fears her family has been breathing toxic smoke for days after fire scorched part of the Santa Susana field lab contaminated with toxic chemicals. When the fire incinerated, all of the grass and the trees, that, that probably released a lot more contamination. But government officials say testing shows the air is safe. Some doctors and advocates call that a smoke screen. Smoke from any brush fire is dangerous to inhale. In this case, with these added uh, very hazardous elements, it makes it far more dangerous. Tonight in hard-hit communities, new questions and worry, even after the firestorm has passed.
Prosecutors in New York today show jurors video of what they say was the elaborate drug tunnel used by alleged drug trafficker Joaquin El Chapo Guzman between Mexico and an Arizona warehouse. The video is silent and poor quality, but shows the tunnel was half the length of a football field and big enough for a man of average height to walk through, barely lowering his head. The tunnel had electric lights and a hydraulic system to lift away part of a floor that was covered by a pool table. Inside the tunnel, carts were used to quickly move tons of cocaine across the border. Guzman is on trial for allegedly running a multi-billion dollar drug trafficking operation. He has pleaded not guilty. The young man awaiting trial for one of America's worst school massacres is now facing more charges. 20-year-old Nicholas Cruz is accused of attacking a prison guard and grabbing his taser. Accused Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooter Nicholas Cruz back in court today after a stunning turn of events allegedly attacking a guard in jail. According to an affidavit, Wednesday afternoon, a deputy garden Cruz told him not to drag his sandals on the ground while walking. Instead, Cruz responded by displaying his middle finger, rushed the deputy, and struck him in the face and hit him repeatedly. Investigators say it was all recorded on a closed-circuit camera at the Broward County Jail, including Cruz grabbing the deputy's taser-like device, like this one, before the deputy got it back. Andrew Pollock's daughter, Meadow, was among the 17 killed in the high school shooting. Today, reacting to word, deputies eventually got the upper hand on Cruz. The officers should have finished uh, what he started. That's what they should have done. And they had their opportunity last night. Tonight, Nicholas Cruz still in jail in solitary confinement. Kerry Sanders, NBC News, Fort Lauderdale. Now, before we show you these next pictures, we want to tell you this horse survived her ordeal with only minor injuries. The animal fell into a narrow ditch in an Italian cemetery, wedged upside down and so tight she could barely be seen. Visitors to the cemetery heard the horse whining and called police. A veterinarian sedated the horse and firefighters used a harness and a crane equipped with a special telescopic arm in order to lift her out. And she is pretty banged up, but her injuries aren't serious. Good to know. Thousands of British Columbians could be at risk of diabetes and not even know it. So today on World Diabetes Day, your chance to get a free screening. The risk assessment clinics took place at several community centers. Linda Aylesworth tells us how they could save a lot of lives. So you fall into the moderate risk? When better to hold the second annual diabetes assessment campaign than on World Diabetes Day? Yes. At numerous Vancouver community centers, passersby were invited to fill out a questionnaire to find out if they were at risk of developing type 2 diabetes. We're here to screen people, identify it early, so that they can attack it early and avoid the complications. And there are many potential complications. Diabetes is responsible for 30% of strokes, 40% of heart attacks, 50% of kidney disease requiring dialysis, and 70% of lower limb amputations. Diabetes is a disease that's well known, but not known well. So it's important that we have these types of screenings. Important because 30% of British Columbians don't know they have the disease, which is a significant number when you consider one in four have diabetes or prediabetes. Some of us are more at risk than others. Populations such as the South Asians, Asians, Southeast Asians and Indigenous 
are two to five times more likely to develop diabetes over their lifetime. But there are other risk factors we can do something about. Lifestyle choices, like improving our diets and exercising. Now we add everything up and see how you score. So, you've got so seven, learning that six. you're high risk, like May did today, isn't necessarily a bad thing. I'm doing a exercise and I'm avoiding a, like sugary food. You can assess your risk online anytime at diabetestest.ca. If you are at risk, print out the questionnaire. And they can take it off to their medical practitioner and go for formal testing to determine whether they have diabetes. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. And in other health news tonight, the provincial government has opened another new urgent care centre, this one in Surrey. The government says the centre is for non-emergency patients who don't have a family doctor, but who still need to see a health care professional within the next 12 to 48 hours. The centre has nine care rooms that will be staffed by doctors, nurses, pharmacists and other health care professionals, and one virtual care room where patients can talk to a doctor online. We have uh, uh, emergency departments that are overflowing, uh, and as the Minister said earlier, we have a, uh, a lot of patients that feel the need to go there because they don't have access to the kind of primary care services that would offset that, uh, that uh, volume. Um, and so a place like this helps. This is the fourth urgent care centre in B.C. Patients can be referred by health care providers, make appointments, or simply walk in. What happened after this basketball shot that got a player banned from campus right after the forecast? Thanks. Yeah. All right. Meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us now with a look at that forecast. Ew, that looks unpleasant. Yes. Thankfully, though, it was earlier today. We're not dealing with this now. Wet morning, that's for sure. Beautiful shot from Michelle uh, with the SkyTrain there. And all of it, she said she was in the very front of the SkyTrain and lots of rain on the windshield. Brighter, though, in the afternoon. A nice shot from Langdale Terminal. So that's uh, the Port Mellon Gibsons area with the rainbow there to end off the day. Fresh snow, though, in Revelstoke and and in many parts of the province, we need to talk about that snowfall because we're going to see significant amounts in the next 24 hours. Look at this system. I mean, it doesn't last long. It moves through in about 24 hours, but we certainly will get uh, significant snowfall. Rogers Pass is a bit of a mess right now. They've had problems on that throughout the day, and there is a snowfall warning for that area. And in fact, what you're seeing there in that tower cam shot is not what we're going to see tomorrow. It's going to get even worse. So 25 centimeters of snow expected all the way from Eagle Pass through uh, Rogers Pass and then the whole Princeton Kootenai Pass all of these other areas not as much because the freezing level is actually fairly high in those areas so a couple of centimeters the Coquihalla likely just wet snow although for the Coquihalla that can tend to mean slushy slippery conditions so you have to watch for that. Here's the snow forecast for lower elevations one area we're pointing out is Smithers. I'm expecting significant snow in your region. Prince George 5 to 10 down into Quinell and Williams Lake. I think those numbers are underdone. I think you can expect 2 to 4 centimeters. And then this region here from Valemont right down and through the Columbia region. Snow overnight right down into the valley bottom for you up to 10 centimeters possibly. And all of these other areas should be milder. We're really talking about just wet snow not accumulating much and then changing over to rain pretty quickly. So there's your forecast everyone. Wet certainly along the coast but all inland regions have
have the potential of uh, snow from right down into Williams Lake and then extending into that Columbia region. Further south, we're looking at wet conditions. It will be wet across the lower mainland and the south coast tomorrow. Light rain, not heavy, but then we clear out on Friday. We've got a terrific weekend in store for everyone across the south coast and the province. And I thought because of all the snowfall, we would end off with this shot from Alan Lansing. And he, it was, I don't know how he took this, but it's pretty incredible how clear that is. He's got the macro lens going on that Does thing. He? That's beautiful. Does he ever? All right. Thanks, Christy. A college basketball player has been suspended, even banned from campus, and it's not hard to see why. Watch the bottom left of your screen for what happens to Nichols college guard Nate Tenaglia after he makes a three-point shot. Fitchburg State's Kevin Platt levels him with a vicious elbow to the face. There you go. Oh, let's slow Yikes. it down one more time, shall we? He was okay. Platt can even be seen checking to make sure the referee isn't looking. Luckily, no one saw it, or it could have sparked an all-out brawl right there. Uh, Platt has been suspended indefinitely and, as we mentioned, is banned from campus. As for Tenaglia, he was able to get up and continue playing. Trained the foul shot there, too. Tough kid. Mm -hmm. Well done. Yikes. Squire, I, I you don't like to see that. I, well, I saw that last night and I thought, uh, I mean, maybe there was something that happened earlier in the game, but I don't care what happened earlier in the game. Yeah. It, doesn't, right. it doesn't warrant that of mm -hmm. all things. Yeah. I mean, if something happened, then man up. Don't just exactly. cheap shot the guy. <laughs> it's always good to have some cartoons on. It's cute. Yeah. I thought they were candies. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm hungry. That's right. Remind you, what were those things called? Sweet tarts? Sweet tarts, yeah. Sweet tarts. Things. I love the sweet tarts. Um, okay. Now that the Sedins have finished playing, this next part of their life will include a lot of recognition for what they did during their Canucks career. Next year, they'll have their numbers retired. Eventually, the Hockey Hall of Fame should come calling them, just as the BC Sports Hall of Fame did today. They are in the BC Hall, and they spoke to Jay about it after they were inducted. The newest members of the BC Sports Hall of Fame, Henrik and Daniel Sedin, congratulations, fellas. Uh, you're just retired a couple months now, but to be enshrined in the BC Sports Hall of Fame, the first Swedes to ever go in. Yeah, it's uh, it's a good feeling. It's uh, like I said, it's uh, it's been a lot of good Swedes uh, that like to play for the Canucks. So for us to be the first ones, uh, it's uh, special. Does it re-emphasize to you how important you've been to this community? I don't know. I don't know if you think that way, but it's uh, walking around in here. It's 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 a lot of great athletes. Uh, in the in the BC Hall of Fame, and uh, for us to be there too, it's, it's just uh, yeah, it's an amazing feeling. Let's talk about retirement. Have you watched your former team in action? They've got off to a pretty good start, specifically Elias Pettersson. Yeah, no, it's uh, they look good. It's uh, they're scoring goals, and it's uh, they're a fun team to watch. So uh, Canuck fans should be excited. It's uh, uh, it's a lot of a lot of fun to watch them. You are both uh, still very fit. Look like you can still play. You've been doing a lot of running. What have you been up to? A lot of running, a uh, little bit of golf, and uh, just uh, being with our kids. I think they, they keep us uh, keep us running too, so it's, uh, it's been good. Guys, have your careers exceeded your wildest expectations when you look at the fact you led this team to a Stanley Cup final, you won so many NHL individual trophies, and now you're members of the BC Sports Hall of Fame. When you came here as young men, did you ever envision this kind of success? No, of course not. I mean, it's uh, I think that's the one thing that we're maybe the most proud of that we we got everything out of our, our talent, and, and uh, we worked extremely hard to to become the best we could be, and that's uh, that's all you can ask for. And I think we did that, and that's uh, from pushing each other uh, every day in the summertime to, to, to get better, and 
Uh, apart from winning the Stanley Cup, I think we uh, we got the most out of our talents. Daniel and Henrik Sedin, I think I speak for the entire province when I say congratulations on becoming the newest members of the BC Sports Hall of Fame. Thank you. All right, congratulations, skier Emily Bryden, Kelly McCallum, and Roy Girella, who played with some great Steelers teams in as athletes. Tony Waiters, who coached the Whitecaps to their uh, Super, Super Soccer Bowl victory in 79, mm-hmm. and also coached Canada at their only World Cup appearance, was in... Uh, New Westminster Salmon Valleys of 1968. Our old friend Dan Jukic, voice of the races at uh, Hastings Racecourse. He goes in. Ralph Henderson goes in as a pioneer. And Vancouver Giants owner Ron Toigo also in the hall today as the WAC Bennett Award. That recognizes all the great work he has done locally for hockey. For him, though, owning the Vancouver Giants, bringing the World Juniors to Vancouver twice, it's happening again this year, and the Memorial Cup Tournament, which, of course, the Giants won, has been a labor of love. Sports is a great thing. Sports is a great escape on, on life. And uh, when things are going right, no matter what team you're, you're pulling for, uh, for that two or three hours, you're just having a great time. And, uh, and, and I love being part of that and making it happen. Vancouver is no longer in the running for hosting golf's President's Cup in 2023, the event where the American players take on the world minus Europe. It was supposed to be held at Shaughnessy, or that was the hope, but that's not going to happen. Logistically, it could not be worked out, despite the fact the players love playing at Shaughnessy. It's not really a big enough area to accommodate such a large event. U-17 Girls World Cup, a couple of B.C. girls combining for Canada here. Caitlin Shaw with the uh, cross. Jordan Haitema with the header. Canada won nothing in their first game against Columbia. That was in the 77th minute. Anderson Williams is going to add a goal here in the 88th minute. The Canadian girls would win this by the score of 3-0 in their opening game at the tournament. Tomorrow, Packers-Seahawks, Thursday night game in Seattle. The Packers' first visit to CenturyLink Field since their meltdown in the NFC Championship game of 2015. That's when they blew a 16-0 halftime lead. Lost 28-22 in overtime. A lot of the Packers on this year's team weren't there in 2015, but Aaron Rodgers was, and the way it ended still haunts him and always will. That game will always be frustrating. Think about how it went down, some of the things that happened, you know, getting six points in, in two uh, possessions inside five. And then, um, you know, obviously how well our defense played and us not being able to finish that game off there in the fourth quarter, give them a chance to come back, onside kick. Yeah, that one, uh, that one's probably, the sting's probably never going to go away from that one. That's natural. Chanel Pratap has never recovered from that. <laughs> he carries that greatest, wound around with him every day. fan and a part owner. It's upset him ever since. He walks around he's sadly not he's not the same green man. Green Bay slippers. Yeah, he's not the same man. <laughs> Poor Eyes guy. are sunken in a little more. Yeah, That's just age. Uh, well, <laughs> Thanks, Squire. You're right. There might have been some serious geeking out in the global newsroom today with news that you can now order your brand new hover bike. Well, if you can expect it, <laughs> right. it'll cost you, that's for sure. And there are questions about just how safe they are. Tonight, vehicles that were once pure science fiction, like in Return of the Jedi, could soon be a reality. 
California-based Hover Surf says it's delivering these hover bikes next year. They're powered by four propellers and go about 45 miles an hour, zooming 16 feet above the ground. It's like a motorcycle, but the motorcycle flies like a drone. But at $150,000, the thrill doesn't come cheap. In Dubai, police are already getting trained on the hover bikes. And the competition will be fierce. Kitty Hawk Corporation developing these and Uber even promising flying taxis. The FAA believes hover bikes could be subject to experimental aircraft regulations. How safe are these? Well, we don't know the safety rate of them yet because this is new and novel technology. They don't store very much energy. They don't have very much range or endurance. A new way to hit the road without touching the ground. Joe Kent, NBC News. As awesome as that is, Squire is unimpressed and would rather see the beam me up technology. Of all the science fiction things that you'd like to have come, like, would you not want to have the Star Trek thing where you could go wherever you want? In a flash. And And a a replicator. Yes, and you can can go to Paris and sleep in your own bed. Okay, I'm done. Send me home. Right. See me up. I'm with you. These are the ideas (laughs) that you only get watching the news hour. With Squire Barnes. Well, that's that's Gene Roddenberry's idea, but I'm just saying we should adopt it if we can. Oh, we just phased out right there. Nice. Good night.